My name is William Corliss and this is the Workplace Podcast. Brought to you in association with Yellowwood, providers of executive coaching, corporate training and facilitation. Your external learning and development partner. Each week we focus on a different aspect of the workplace. We hear from guest speakers who will be subject matter experts, who I believe are incredibly talented at what they do. These experts will give you a different perspective and insight to work life, with the aim of empowering you to take a different path to success in all aspects of work life. These perspectives will include career and personal success, leadership, high performance teams, and creating a better work life culture in your organization. Yellowwood, take a different path to success with your career, team, and organization. Welcome to the Workplace Podcast. Our guest today is Sertrice Grice. And our topic is how to support people of color in the workplace. Sertrice Grice MS is the co-founder and chief consulting officer with Mattingly Solutions. Sertrice has deep experience helping complex global organizations with annual census surveys, pulse surveys, 180 and 360 assessments, and more. Sertrice enjoys interpreting organization data and creating a narrative that helps drive meaningful change. Sertrice writes and presents frequently on issues of diversity, equity, and inclusion. She created inclusion and diversity and anti-racist organization surveys and works with a number of clients on more customized DEI surveys. Very welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Excited to be here. It's brilliant to have you. Um, I'm a big fan of you on LinkedIn, um, especially your new podcast, which is called Sassy Saturdays. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, Saturdays, I'll be posting weekly and just giving some honest, like what we call real talk, um, kind of feedback on what's going on in the DEI space and things people should consider. So really excited. I've had two posts so far, but uh, excited to keep that weekly series going. Sure, and that's how I started out. So listen, I'm wishing you the very best of success with that. And where did Sassy Saturday come from? I like that. I, I, I was looking at a post called Sastries. Is that right? Could you tell yep. me a little bit about that? Yeah. So uh, it's really funny. Back when I was in undergrad, um, I had a friend, Josiah, and we were in this organization together. And um, he gave me this nickname. He was like Sash Trees. And he said it one day, just kidding. But I loved it because one, I love my name, Sir Trace. And two, I know I can be a bit sassy sometimes. So the fact that he kind of combined the two, I thought it was a hoot and made that my social media handle. And when I was sitting down and trying to think of ways to, you know, get, get my presence out there on whether it's LinkedIn or Instagram, I kind of cross post there. And I was like, what am I going to call this series? You know, what, what am I going to call this weekly post? And I came up with Sassy Saturday because I love that idea of really just embracing authentically who I am, you know, and when I joined Mattingly Solutions in a leadership position, you know, co-founder, chief consulting officer, I, I paused in that moment of, should I change my name on social media? Should I, like, is Sass Trees too, you know, informal? What are people going to think? Are they going to judge me? 
And at that time I thought, no, again, like I'm going to embrace my authentic self. There's nothing saying that can't be professional. And just because you're sassy doesn't mean you're rude, you know, or disrespectful or unprofessional. It's just a little, it's a little personality, a little flavor. So um, I kept the name then and I decided to dig in deeper with Sassy Saturdays, my posts. And that's what I think the wonderful thing about podcasts, it allows people to get a, a different view of your personality. We have the professional side and the personal side and sometimes the interweave, which is wonderful to see. And then that brings us to our topic then is how do we support people of color in the workplace? So again, sometimes people might find this a difficult topic. Some people might find it an easy topic. And for me, in terms of this podcast, then it's really about giving people a different uh, insight there. So where do you want to begin? You know, how how do we start this conversation? Yeah. So first, how about we start broadly a little bit more with Mattingly Solutions and what we do and how that can relate then to supporting them in the workplace. So um, Mattingly Solutions, we are a diversity, equity and inclusion consulting firm. And we partner with organizations who want to foster a culture of inclusion. Um, And we do that through employee-centric measurement and allyship. So basically there, as you said, I'm an industrial organizational psychologist. So is my partner, Victoria. Uh, And so we, while the hearts and minds are very important in regards to DEI work, it's not all fluff. People like to assume, oh, you're doing diversity and inclusion. It's all about feelings. No, there's data that's really important and valuable when doing this work. And so that's the angle we come in at. Uh, We start with our clients by looking at measurement and getting some hard numbers around, you know, their their workforce base, what's the demographic split um, throughout the entire employee life cycle. And then we get the employee voice and take an employee-centric approach through looking at a survey, you know, and diving in. How do the employees feel? Do they feel safe? Do they feel like they belong? Uh, And then from there, after gathering all that data, we're like, all right, now we can start to build a strategy. How do you want to define diversity and inclusion? Uh, what are your priorities? What are your goals? And then from there, we develop a roadmap. Uh, as our DEIX roadmap is what we call it. And that has specific goals and then actions tied to those. And then finally, we get to that phase where you can actually act, right? A lot of organizations, they, they did it a little backwards. They made us, they started with the action, right? They made a statement. They come out, they do an unconscious bias training and they're like, yep, we're good to go. Um, but we, we slow our clients down and make them take a thoughtful approach before getting to that action phase. And then after action, following up with more data. Again, IO psychologists, we can't help ourselves. Um, so measuring and just making sure that those programs are having the impact that they want. Um, so that's a quick view of our process and how we work with clients through diversity and inclusion, but that that's how you help, right? Is first admitting that you need to do this work. That's how you're going to support those employees and the roles is saying, yep, we, we know we have a problem. We may not know what that problem is yet, but every organization does. We're not special. So let's do, let's put in the time. Let's find what our unique issue is, where our problems lie and then put in the work to fix those problems and address them. So I'll pause. I've been rambling. (laughs) No, I think that's wonderful because I think that's sometimes an approach with organizations is they're too quick to take to action without having a thoughtful 
and considered approach using that evidence base there based on the, the data that you were talking about there. Sorry, I'm going to use uh, the Irish version data uh, there. <laughs> so again, in, in terms of that, I think there's there's a couple of things. Some people in organizations can be very proactive on this. Mm-hmm. And then obviously of the other hand, where people who are quick to go into action are the more reactive. So do you notice that in in industry where you'll have certain clients that are proactive and certain people are reactive, say, listen, we need something done and we need something done this quarter? Yeah. So I would say historically, most organizations have been more reactive. You know, it's they are reacting to something in society. So 2020, we all know 2020 was a mess, right? And so a lot of companies reacted to that and then did things. Um, Even prior to that, it was, you know, somebody made a huge fuss about something. So then they're like, okay, okay, let's react, let's do something. Um, So we're trying to move more into this space of being proactive and starting and just having these plans already in place. Um, I I would say it doesn't necessarily matter the industry. That's kind of just the pattern we've seen. Uh, But one thing we're specifically targeting, which is kind of funny because when people think of our work, they're like, oh, you want to work with larger companies, right? Um, But we're trying to target more and more startups because then it's like, you don't have to be reactive. A startup is establishing themselves as a company, right? You're making your employee handbook. You're coming up with your policies. Why not? Even if there's only 10 of you, there's five of you to start. Why not already have DEI ingrained? Have your, have your statement, your strategy develop, the goals attached to it. Um, one, so you don't have to be reactive later. But two, because it will help you grow, right? We, if you have that in place, and then when you're going to recruit um, employees, they're going to see that. That's going to attract them. When you're going to work with clients, they're going to see, oh, look, because that's the other thing is nowadays, more and more people, when they're looking for vendors or you know people they're going to work with, they want to see that they prioritize this as well. So in every shape and form, having this in place from the start is only going to benefit you as a company. So we've been looking more and more to try and get some startups to realize that as well. And that's great there that you're getting that ground floor approach that you're going in early days with the organization to help yeah. build that culture straight away. And I think, you know, that's a trend that's happening in the US that's not quite transferred over to Europe yet, where mm-hmm. vendors are specifically looking for DNI initiatives and policies there would that be fair to say yeah going into that then we'll say when people are being reactive then what are the kind of typical um incidents or events or issues that come up when people are being reactive to we'll say racial bias in the workplace or Mm -hmm. or whatever that may be that discrimination Yeah. So I would say there's two things that people are, why they're being reactive. One is that kind of social clout or their social status, right? Um, How, how are their customers going to look at them? Uh, How are their, again, potential employers looking at them? And so they're like, all right, we gotta, we gotta do something because it's, it's the thing that society is saying we need to do right now. Um, and then the other one, the big one is legal reasons, right? They're reacting because they, they don't want to get sued. That's, that's a lot of it. And when you come into this work with that mindset of it's simply because you want to avoid a lawsuit, 
you're not going to get the best work done. Um, and a lot of times it's rushed and your priorities aren't straight. Um, so, and, and what's funny is I don't, I don't think that should be the focus, you know, and, and they, yeah. they focus so much on that, but if you came into it with the right mindset, just because it's the right thing to do, um, your, your employees are going to focus more on that than suing you later on anyways. And that's the fear though, is, you know, if we do this work, what if they're, what if they sue us and what are we going to do then at that point? And it's like, well, that's, that's not every, not every person is looking to make a quick buck. And it's also not a quick buck to go through a lawsuit, right? They'd much rather just have a reliable place to work where they feel safe. And so it, it's really interesting that that's, that's just the fear, you know, we, they can't that. And I think that's the core right there. They come into this with fear. So. Yeah. And, and you did a really good LinkedIn post on the business case versus the moral case, mm-hmm. you know, and there's, there was a bit of a few comments about that. Can you tell me a little bit more? Like it's a bit of both, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. That, and that's the camp I lie in. And nowadays more and more, uh, people like this field is trying to grow. There's a lot of people who are couch experts on DEI. Right. Um, and so they're coming up and they have a lot of opinions. Um, but I've, I've been in this space, you know, I've been doing this for, for years now. And so has my partner. And, um, what you find is that if you focus only on one or the other, you're, you're bound to fail. So if you focus strictly on business case, then you're losing the fact that your employees matter. They're human. You know, it, it removes that whole humanistic viewpoint and it makes it, it makes it performative. You know, you're just, I'm going to put my statement out there and that's good enough, or I'm going to check this box and I'm done. And your employees see that. And so it's not, whatever you do isn't having the true impact that you want at that point because they know, and they're like, this isn't real. And they're going to look for other places to go where they really are valued, seen and heard. However, on the flip side, if you come in and you are on your moral high horse and all you say, you know, especially external consultants who come in and do this work, if you just tell the CEO, Hey, this is the moral thing to do. And this is how you need to run your business because like, that's what I said is right. People are going to shut down. They're not going to really truly embrace it at that point. And it becomes, if, if you come in and it's negative and you're just attacking people, they're going to think, why bother? Everything I do is wrong. Nothing I do matters. So I'm just going to live my life and do what I want. I'm not going to put in the effort. So we have to find that line of, yeah, it's the right thing to do. But in, and here's why it's the right thing. And, you know, try and change their hearts and minds, but also show, Hey, when you did this extra work, look, it didn't hurt your bottom line. It actually improved your bottom line. You're still making money. Your employees are happier. It's a win-win for everyone. So connecting those two stories together really, in, in my experience, has shown the best result um, for organizations. And, you know, and, and that's what, you know, the pandemic has, has showed us. The key differentiator with, with, with organizations, especially when there's a war on talent now working from home, is that people matter. We need yeah. to keep our people. And mm-hmm. then you're bringing up a... A great point is is that are we valued and it's that approach there because if it's seen as like an external uh person coming in saying oh you're naughty you know and doing that you're just going to resist it aren't you so it's about mm-hmm. having an inclusive approach all it's the holistic approach isn't it 
Yeah, exactly. And that's, that's it. It's really funny um, that you use that phrase because that's the work we're in, right? Is diversity, equity, and inclusion. And people miss being inclusive in that work, you know? Um, and that's, that actually, is, I'm going to segue a little bit here. Um, that's part of why my partner, Victoria, brought me in. Uh, we tell this story all the time. Uh, so she is a white woman and she has a background in doing a lot of gender study work and was very gender focused. But um, she realized that in growing her business, one, she needed more hands, things were growing, but two, that she was missing a different viewpoint. And so she wanted to bring in someone meaningfully different from her. And that's part of why she, we, we would are, we were already connected. We knew we got along, but she was like, there are conversations that you can have with black people that I can't. <laughs> and I know that. And in this space and in America right now, a lot of the conversations are there. So I'd be missing the boat if I tried to work with clients and said I could tackle their issues in this space because I can't alone. Um, and that's why she brought me in. And the reason I tell this story is because if you look at a lot of DNI firms right now, they're, they're very segregated. It's, this is woman owned. This is, you know, your traditional white owned company. Um, or even like, I'm going to say our little black groups are coming up. Right. And it's this like, it's very one off and segmented and, you can't speak to everyone the same. There are things I, like she said, I can say the black people that she can't, but there's also things that white people are going to hear better from her than they would hear from me. And there's, there's enough work out there for all of us to succeed, you know? So really in our industry, we need to do a better job of coming together, crossing lines and whether that's expanding, you know, your own workforce and who's on your team or partnering with others. We have a lot of partners. So for instance, we partner with males for some of that gender work um, and tag team, um, some sessions, just really realizing that there is a benefit to having diverse representation in our DNI work. And it's, it, again, it's just kind of ironic that you have to have that conversation, but it, it's something that we've noticed is missing in our industry. Uh, yeah, I would completely concur with that because I think there's an element there of, you know, you talk about the segmentation there, but again, it's about what are your, your, your lived experience, you know, um, mm -hmm. do you have the expertise and the facilitation skills as part of that? Cause that's part of the approach as well. Yep. And I'm often brought in to the, to do, to do these initiatives based on my facilitation skills but then I'm kind of like well you know am I the right person to deliver this message or am I in a space where I can actually do it so I think it's really good to have connections like you to say you know what well maybe it's not me you should be talking to um, mm -hmm. even though I have the facilitation expertise I think the voice needs to be from a different person um, or those experiences yeah are very different there. So why not, um, you know, leverage those, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's definitely finding a line, um, and figuring out when it's okay and when it's not. Um, and for us making sure we're not just in it for the money, right? Because if you're in it for the money, it's very easy to just say yes, when people come to you and yeah, I can mm -hmm. do it. I'll do anything. But like you said, having the self-awareness to say, you know, maybe I'm not the best partner for this, but I know someone who is and redirecting one that's going to benefit your client. Um, two, it will benefit you because they see like, man, this person, you know, they, they're not just in it for their bottom line. They truly want me to have the best help. And two, you're helping that community, right? If you're in doing this kind of work, you 
probably want to live and breathe it too, right? That would be my assumption. And so now you are giving that Black person, that woman, that AAPI, whoever it is, a platform to go and have that experience as well, you know? So there's a lot of support in that sense too. And I think it's, it sends the message out from the organization that we're taking the right approach to this, that we're not just doing the quick fix. You know, exactly. here's a pale male, stale Irish guy coming in to do the work. You know, and that's my biggest fear, if I'm honest, right? So yeah. the only thing I can avoid is being stale. So, <laughs> um, you know, so that's what I want you to, to, for our listeners to understand, that is how do we have these conversations? And are we having the conversations at, at, with with the right people at the right time. Would would you agree with that approach? Yeah, it's, and that's definitely it. Um, and that was my thought too, is again, it's about, like you said, your lived experience and making sure that if it's that kind of situation, it can be really powerful to have someone come in and be able to speak to it from a place where they lived. However, the line where I said that we're walking a line be being careful not to go too far in the other direction either um where Mm -hmm. we get into tokenism and just pulling people in because they are x y or z so still making sure that the people you have coming in are are qualified to do the work have experience doing the work because like i said a lot of people have been popping up and claiming to know what they do in this space but just make sure you vet them and it's it's not anything crazy it's what you do for anything you know but just making sure do they have experience in this work and actually can help you get the results you want? Um, and I'll also say something that's been a little fearful for me, I, I, I hear in these conversations is people who just don't want to work with white people. You know, they're like, oh, they're white. They can't talk about anything in this space. And it's like, well, like I said, there is a benefit still to having you in the space. Yes, your lived experience isn't mine. So if it's talking to to the Black lived experience, no, a white person shouldn't do that. However, if it's talking about like the subject broadly or leaning into the ally side of allyship, they can talk. And what they can say is, you know, the, the lines you've had to walk, the lessons you've learned in your allyship journey and how that's kind of shaped and framed. So let me, let me dive into that a little bit more actually is allyship, because I said, I let you know, that's something we dive into and we, we have a course on and everything. Um, It's like you read my mind. I was just about (laughs) to ask you that. Yeah. Yeah. So um, when, when it comes to allyship at Mattingly Solutions, we define it as a relationship between an ally and a partner working towards social justice. Um, So I'm going to break that down because there's a few key parts. One is that it's a relationship, right? So a lot of times people will like to just say like, I'm an ally to the black community. No. What does that mean? (laughs) Are you really going to help the entire black community with everything you do? No, because we're not all the same and we all need something different. So making sure that you bring that down to an individualized level. Um, Two, is that you are meaningfully different from that person, right? So if you're an ally and you're working with a partner, is uh, that's where it's like, you know, a man working with a woman or you're white and you're working with someone black or like you're straight and you're working with someone in the LGBTQIA+. You know, anyone can be an ally for someone else. What matters is that you are meaningfully different and that you have uh, benefits that they don't, that you can use to support them. Um, and... The next part I want to touch on there is the the two pieces of that, right? So a lot of times when we talk about allyship, it is very focused on the ally 
And a lot of times it's focused on white males as the ally, right? So we touched on the fact that anyone could be an ally. Uh, but now I want to touch on this term I keep using, partner. Um, so you have the ally. That's the person who has some kind of privilege and is helping someone else. The partner is the person that you're building a relationship with and that you want to help. And it's important to converse with the partner as well so they can figure out how to make the most of this allyship relationship. Uh, if we focus so much on, you know, how can the ally come in and save the world? That's where we get into this savior space, right? And that's icky yeah. and we don't want that. That's not what it is. That's not what it's about. It's, it's we're working together towards a goal. So that's the next part, right, is the action. It's action oriented. So with allies, making sure we have a conversation of, all right, don't make things about you. Make sure you're helping them. You're leaning in, you know, get comfortable with the uncomfortable, all of these things. But on the partner side, also saying, you know, you have to come in assuming the best of everyone. You can't come in with negativity. You have to be willing to partner with them, give them space to make errors, but then giving, explaining to them why, you know, but also having some, your own psychological safety where if they keep making errors or if they make errors and don't want to change, well, then maybe you just take a step back, you know? So in coaching them on how to find that line um, to where they're benefiting from this relationship as best they can. Uh, so yeah, it's, it's a really complicated thing in allyship. The term was kind of dragged through the mud this past year or two because of performative allyship. People just claiming they're an ally or, you know, making their little profile picture, something related and moving on. But no, if you, if you look at it in this, um, holistic way, then you're going to have better, better outcomes. And, and, and it doesn't really matter what you call it. That's another thing we could get into, you know, is, Oh, I'm an accomplice versus an ally and so on and so on. The core is what are you doing with that relationship? And what are the outcomes? And as long as you're working towards positive outcomes, it's, it's, it's a benefit to everybody. And I think it's a really important point that you make. It's that co-creation between the partner and the mm-hmm. ally, you know, which is, is really great there. And again, you were talking about that social justice uh, piece there. And are, is there a little bit there that you kind of ask yourself, why am I doing this? Is this tokenism or am I really going to commit do something um, and it is a commitment to that relationship and commitment to social justice on real terms not this you know uh, social media kind of looking for kudos or whatever there has to be a real substance behind it you know and I think they're key important points that you've made and I think that point about the the savior piece I don't think there's enough conversation around that because I, I think people want to help but they just don't know how Mm-hmm. Would you agree with that? It's it's just that. Yeah. And that's, that's exactly where the partnership comes into play, right? Is you don't, you, you don't know what other people need. So it's, it's understandable that people feel lost, right? They, they feel good. Again, assuming the best of everyone, you have good intentions, but you don't know where to direct that energy. And that's why it's important to just work directly with that person. Don't assume things, right? Picture yourself. If you needed something, um, let's say you needed you needed a glass of water and someone instead brought you some peanut butter and they were like, oh, I noticed you needed something. I just thought it was peanut butter. You're like, that's actually going to make it worse. I'm really thirsty, right? This peanut butter is going to dry my mouth out. Um, if you would have just asked me, I would have told you it was that I was thirsty, not hungry. So using that and keeping that in mind, don't make assumptions of people, just talk to them. That's all it is. 
And also this work is huge. It's daunting. Don't think again, don't think I'm going to support the whole community. The odds of one person changing the entire world, slim to none, right? It's, it's very likely not going to happen. So starting in your own backyard, starting small. And if every single person made a connection with one other person to do, to do something helpful, you know, we'd all end up in a better place in a much faster pace than if someone just tried to, you know, save the entire world. So again, bringing it down to that individual level and just learning exactly what does this specific person need? Because again, I'm going to lean in on this one. Not everyone in the black community is the same. They're not having the same issues. They don't need the same help. Um, and even more specifically, we work with organizations, right? Not everyone in your organization is going to need the same thing as another organization or another department or even the person next to them. So just making sure you find specifically how can you help them. Um, and one other thought I just had that I remember I was in this conversation one time and it was it was a group and we were having a discussion. I won't say what group or, or whatever, but we were we were having a discussion and people were trying to figure out how to be allies and they were like, I just, how do I, I don't have a lot of black people in my circle. How do I find these other black people without, you know, being weird about it? <laughs> like, well, just don't focus on the fact that they're black. Like, just look, look into your own, uh, your circle, right? And if you realize that everybody you're friends with, everybody you talk to looks the same as you, think to yourself, how am I, how am I meeting people? How am I making friends? And I'll, I'll be the first to admit, I've moved around a lot. Making friends as an adult is really hard. And you have to kind of go out of your way and look for different methods to do it. But that's the key, right? So I am going to go ahead and throw out a little stereotype for a second. But just bear with me just to give us an example. Um, if you think of jazz, right, you think more likely you might see some, some Black people there, right? So if you see here a local jazz festival is happening, maybe that's something you wouldn't normally go to. Just go out of your comfort zone. Go there. I'm not saying like walk up to someone and be like, hey, I'm looking for a black friend, but just go to the jazz festival and see if a natural conversation sparks with anyone. Trade contact info. Boom. You just expanded your circle, right? Compared to going down to the same hangout that you always go to with the people who likely look like you, you know, which is how you ended up in the situation in the first place. So just branching out and widening your horizons. That's all you have to do. Don't don't go out and think, okay, I have to go out and target and I'm going to find one black person today and I'm going to make that person be my friend. <laughs> that's, that's not how <laughs> building friendships or relationships work, you know? So just do it naturally. The only conscious effort I ask you to make is to just widen your horizons of the types of places you're going, go somewhere different, and you're more than likely to find someone who's different than you because you're you're in a different place. And, you know, speaking of the different view, and then I think that's brilliant, you know, um, because you are avoiding that tokenism as well, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Um, there, So I think that's really good advice for our listeners. And then it's all about context, too, because you're talking about the organizations. Every person is different. Every organization is different. So for different organizations, different approach. And we're very much aligned by that in terms of we will never bring the same approach to every organization, which is which is why we're really connected. And I'm interested then in terms of your work with the diagnostic then in terms of the the, the DEI uh, diagnostic. Can you tell me a little bit about that? What are the kind of key elements involved in that? So when you're going into an organization, what are the key elements in that diagnostic? Yeah, so like I said, um, 
for one, we do either our deep dive or audit. And the difference between the two is just how intensive of a review we do. Um, But we're looking at, again, what's your workforce base? So at recruitment, where are you recruiting? What's the breakdown of the people in attendance at those events? You know, Um, and then who are you selecting? What's the breakdown of the people you're selecting? Um, Who's doing the selecting? What's the breakdown of that? You know, and looking at the demographic base all the way into promotions then and including turnover who's getting what assignments, just looking at the, the entire employee life cycle and what's the demographic base at each step. Um, and I'm going to do a quick pause there to say, oftentimes diversity in hiring isn't the issue. People like at the base level, they're doing all right. It's when we get to promoting. A lot of times there's a drop off. And when you get to senior leadership, that's when the numbers are really bad at most organizations. Um, so That's one piece. And then on the other side of the metrics would be uh, the employee voice. So some some organizations already have an employee survey. And so we can look at their data. But our survey, it's called the we refer to it as the MEBA, the Mattingly Inclusion and Belonging Assessment. Um, But that in whether it's, again, our survey or some other D&I survey, I do highly recommend we get away from just slapping two questions on an employee survey and thinking that's enough to to know what's happening in this space for employees. Um, But just really having something designated to looking at uh, how they feel on these different dimensions. So diversity, you know, figuring out how how diverse is it to them? uh, And the equity, do they feel? And it, it is perceptions, I'll give you that. But do they feel like things are equitable and people are treated the same and promoted in the same way? Um, inclusion and belonging. So when we speak of inclusion, we speak of inclusive behaviors. So um, an easy example is, do people use others' preferred pronouns? You know, um, something like that when we're speaking of inclusion. And then the belonging, I belong at this organization. Um, so really diving in to all of these different aspects and finding out, okay, overall, what does the company look like? But here's the important step that many organizations still miss, which blows my mind is you have to, whether it's this specific survey or your general employee engagement survey, you have to break that down by demographic. Because if you just look at it overall, let's say I belong in this organization, right? And you're like, oh, we got an 80% average. We're doing good. Everybody feels happy. Okay, sure. But if your organization is, you know, let's say a thousand employees and you only have 20 black employees, they're not going to largely impact that number. And so then you break it down and you look and see those 20 black employees, well, their average is 30%. Whoa, wait a minute. We completely missed it. We thought everyone was happy. So it's really important that when you're looking at this data, you have to dive deep and look specifically at those breakouts or else you are missing a lot of valuable information. And then I'm going to take that one step further. So now you have this, right? You have this item and your black employees say, right, we'll continue this story. They, they are scoring 30% on average of I belong here. Okay, that's the what, but why, right? We don't know the why. So we follow yeah. up with focus groups and we'll sit down with those black employees and we'll say, hey, 
this is what we were seeing in the data. Can you tell me more? Is, is this representative? Or have there been things that make you feel this way? What have you seen? Why do people stay? Why do people leave? Um, help us paint this picture. What are some solutions that could help us improve that? So now you know why people responded the way they did. And again, it's like I said, in that allyship relationship, right? Of getting, building that relationship, finding specifically what they need. They're going to give you potential solutions to that problem. So again, you're not just guessing and saying, Oh, okay. We scored 30% on belonging. Let's slap an ERG up there. That'll make them happy. No, maybe really they just need something like different. Maybe, um, one organization we were talking to, they have stores and they were like, we can only play one type of music. If you let us play other music, we'll feel better. Like maybe that's all you need to do. That's the simplest solution, right? And all you had to do was ask your employees to find out, oh, wow, that is a silly policy. Why can't you only play this one radio station? <laughs> I don't care what you play, t- play whatever. And that made them happier and that increased their scores. And they, it didn't even cost, you know? So it's important to talk to your employees and get an idea of, why they're feeling the way they're feeling and listen to their suggestions of how it can be better. I think uh, you raise a very important point because a lot of people, if they're disengaged or don't feel like they belong is because they don't feel heard. They could be telling you for years, the same thing over and over again, and then no action is taken or they don't feel acknowledged or heard. And then it's like, you know what, you know, I'm out or you know, whatever their judgments on you, you know. And just on that, then that brings me to the point then of equity that you've mentioned a few times and equality. And a lot of people really don't know the difference between equity and equality. So what I'm, for example, if I'm doing any um, diversity inclusion workshops, you know, I'd always go through this. So maybe you might help our listeners then understand the differences there because I think it's a key difference. Yeah, no, definitely can touch on that. So um, when we hear equity, a lot of times they think equality, and that's where people get concerned. Um, and the thing with equality, you know, is just giving everyone the same. And so you may have seen the picture and there's the people at the fence, right? And they all have a box and it's the same level, but they're all different heights. So now some people can see over and some people can't. Um, and so when we get into equity, that's giving people a little bit of a boost so they can, they can, you know, be at the same level. Then now we can all see across that fence at the same line. And so the key with equity is that you are helping people play catch up, right? They're starting at a disadvantage. So they need a little something to make it to the same place. Um, and actually, I, I find that there's power in storytelling and people can really relate better when you make it specific to them. And uh, another way we like to describe equity um, that is really helpful in like a manufacturing setting and speaking to, I, I find that I, I, my boyfriend's an engineer. I love engineers, but sometimes they, they can be hard to, you know, get into this mindset of what's going on. And so finding something that kind of speaks to them a little better. And so one example we use is let's say you have a manufacturing plant, right? You have two. And one of them is performing at top capacity and the other one is struggling. So in that situation, that one that's the one that's struggling is where you would put in your efforts, right? The other one's already doing well. It's already succeeding. You don't have to put extra resources there, but this one needs help for it to get performing at the level of the other one and be able to succeed. And then you're doing better across the board, right? 
the same thing when we're talking about equity in different ways with people. It's giving they, these other people, they're already succeeding. They're already doing well. We need these, we need to give some extra resources here to get them to this level. So they're performing at the same level. So the, the it, equity is a hard one, um, but it's just making sure you're shaping it and thinking of it in a way that really can resonate with people to understand what's happening there. And then you mentioned about the promotions that, right at that piece where it might might not be overt racism racism or um Mm -hmm. i suppose unconscious bias might be happening all right so you know that's been kind i think to say the least all right so again in terms of that can you tell me a little bit more like what happens like so you say earlier on it's kind of everything's kind of even uh, you mm-hmm. know, and recruitment stage, but then when promotion stage in terms of the employee life cycle that happens, then this way, yeah. how, how do we, how do we monitor for that? How, like if I'm listening in, how do I check myself for that in terms yeah. of self-awareness? So that's a really good question. Um, and the reason I kind of chuckled is we were uh, at a, a presentation recently and speaking to this organization and uh, we were telling them like, hey, we looked into your data and your women have to work twice as hard to be able to get promoted. Um, and they also have more experience. So they come in with more educational experience. They, they're in the position for longer before they can get promoted at the rate of your men. And we had one of their execs raise their hand and they're like, well, I'm going to push back there because we don't look at education when we make these promotions. And we're like, yeah, exactly. That's that's the point. That's it, it. That is the definition of unconscious. You're not looking at it. You're not doing it necessarily intentionally, but clearly based on this data, something's happening. So why is that? That's what we want to dive into. That's the point of this conversation. And so what you do is that's why we look at the data, right? So we can say, hey, clearly this is happening. So you have that support. And then unconscious bias training, you've probably heard oh, unconscious bias training, it's not helpful, right? It it doesn't have an impact. And that's true. Unconscious bias training by itself is not useful. But it is useful in teaching them the basis of what does it mean to have unconscious bias. And that, just for a quick insight, is there's something you have, we all have bias in us. As humans, that's how we survive, is to have bias, right? Um, It's an evolutionary trait, and there's there's benefits to it. We all know that, right? That's why we know to stay away from certain animals or don't jump off a cliff, right? There's there's things you learn. Um, However, it overshadows other things, and that's where we get into the space of where it's negative. So if I were to say, um, picture a CEO, most people automatically picture an older white man, right? And it's not anything that I, anything else I say, but just say picture CEO on average studies have been done. You picture an older white man and that in itself, when you're then looking to promote and looking to fill or hire someone in this position, someone who matches that image in your mind is naturally going to have a bias and you're going to think better of them. And they're more likely to get that position. So just being aware of the science behind humans and how our brains work that's the first step, right? So that's what unconscious bias training gets you is that it's a more in-depth look of the science behind what I was just describing. And then the thing that takes it the next step though, and where you have to move past the training is then having follow-ups where you work through that, right? Explain it to other people, work through ways to move past it. So one would be um, removing names, 
from applications when you're looking at um, moving forward. Or, you know, another one is if you list out instead of thinking, oh, who are our high performance? Uh, who are the people that we want to fill this role? You know, who are my favorites? Looking at your hard numbers and saying, okay, who performs at the top under X, Y, and Z, right? Because you have hard statistics around people's performance. So looking at that and then seeing, oh, you know, my high performers, they, they aren't any of the people I had in mind. I just like those people, right? So they came to mind, but I didn't even know this person existed, but look at their stats. They're doing amazing. And so just finding a way to to remove your personal interests from the process and getting back into just the hard stats is going to help relieve some of that bias because you, you remove the human aspect, you know, and that's where the error comes in. Uh, and this is the same, you know, through any, whether it's selection or promotions. And, you know, and I think there's a lot of um, organizational behavior theory behind that, you know, in terms of yep. um, that justice, the principles of justice there. And that mm-hmm. if you're focused on, you know, that evidence based approach yep. there to say, listen, we are screening for unconscious bias by saying this. We're, these are performance factors that we're looking at. These are the competencies that we're looking for. We're choosing yep. the right person for the for the right role. Yep. And measuring and then, them all the same, measuring them all the, on the same factors. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so it, it creates that equal playing field exactly. if you want. So then go back to equity then. So I'm just curious about this. It just popped into my head as you were yeah. talking then <laughs> in terms of equity then, right? Because is there, it's just a question that I have, is, is there scope there for positive discrimination where we're trying to actively promote someone into a role so, you know, so they can be seen by others then and then more people then will be, uh, what's that one? You got to see it to believe it. Did I get mm-hmm. that correct? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. is is it like for me, that's is there a space and scope for that as well on top of everything else? Can you tell me a little bit more about that? Yeah. And that's that's where people get worried, right, is they start when they hear us talk about equity and giving people opportunities, they start to worry like, oh, is there reverse racism? Right. That's a term we hear. And people are worried. They're like, oh, well, you know, now like I was at a networking event and after hearing what I do, someone specifically said they were like, oh, yeah. So me as a white male, I just I don't get anything. Right. That's how this works. And I was like, whoa, okay, deep breaths. We're we're all right. No, we're we're not here to just, you know, take white men out of everything. That does tend to be the group that gets the most focus. But that's because in often in most cases, you've had the most advantages and you can get the furthest, you know. So, again, it is giving people opportunities to be seen for people to learn about them that you already have. So no, it's not, it's not a major concern because again, the opportunities that you're giving them just gets them opportunities to exist in that space. So it's giving them mentoring opportunities so they can build those personal relationships with people above them. It's giving them more opportunities to present, you know, or be the face of a, of a client so that they now have that opportunity that this person already had. And so when we get to that stage of, all right, well, let's look at promotions, raises, uh, whatever that may be, it's more of a level playing field, right? And, and it, it's going to even out. So it, it's definitely 
still the, the opportunities that you're giving someone when you're trying to increase equity, it's not, again, we are not doing tokenism. So I'm not saying just say, oh, we don't have any black people in these roles. Let's just slap a black person on there. No, I'm saying help develop your black employees so they have more of a chance to be selected when you are filling those roles. That's the key. Because again, if you, if you just start popping black people into roles, that's tokenism. And that's going to hurt, one, your environment, because you are going to have those white males who are like, I've been passed over because of this diversity hire. And we don't want that. We don't want them to feel that way. But you also don't want your Black person to feel that way for two reasons. One, it's a, it creates a hostile environment for them because now they're dealing with this animosity from their colleagues. But two, it makes them second guess. I've personally lived this, where we've had clients come to us and say, I want a diverse consultant. And because I was the only black consultant, like, oh, so Trace, we're going to put you on this client to make them happy. So then I'm like, do you trust me? Does the client trust me? Does anyone care that I have a master's degree and years of experience? Or y'all just put me in here because of the color of my skin. And yeah. we, you don't want them to feel that way. And they, especially because like at that point, I didn't want to do anything for that client. I was like, I'm here and I'll do the work because integrity, but deep in my heart, I was like, I don't want to do anything for you because <laughs> you're not coming in this with the right mindset. So, yeah. so definitely avoiding that tokenistic hire is beneficial to everyone, not just your white employees who are worried about it, but also to those black employees who you would just be slapping in. And in terms of initiatives then that work and other initiatives that don't work, uh, let's assume positive intent there. And we've done all our evidence uh, gathering. We've analyzed the data then, or data, sorry to use your language. (laughs) Um, So we talked about uh, allyship. We talked about mentorship. You know, is there like a, a DNI committee? Like, what are the different things that we could do? Is there different DNI days? Like, what are the different things, that, initiatives that evidence based worked? Yeah, so that's a hard question because it really does come down to what your what your data t- tells you, um, yeah. and how and what you specifically need. But there there are a lot of examples. So it may be training, um, and that could be you know we talked about unconscious bias training. It could be that you find they don't trust in your leadership and they don't think your leadership is committed. So maybe it's training those execs about what's going on in this space, how to have these conversations, why it matters, because maybe your execs don't care, right? So maybe it's, okay, we got to get this buy-in and explain to them why this is important. Um, So building that moral and business case with them. And then it could be that you don't have anything in place. And so that would be us saying, okay, let's develop an IND council whose job it is to make sure that IND mm-hmm. is um, ingrained in every aspect of the organization. Let's re- And they could review policies, make sure that the policies and procedures are inclusive and that they're being imp- uh, applied in an inclusive manner as well. Uh, hosting events, learning sessions, giving them some work. And then similarly, creating employee resource groups is becoming more and more popular um, and moving away from those just being performative where, you know, they host a a, a party for Black History Month or Women's History Month or Cinco de Mayo, whatever th- thing you think they need for that group. Yeah. Moving away from that and having them have access to data as well and being able to say, okay, you know, um, Black ERG, we want to partner with you because we saw our employees 
aren't happy, can, can we do the focus group with you to learn more about that? And what are your suggestions and getting, getting them involved in the work? Um, and also depending on the level of involvement, compensating these employees, because again, if it's something that you would pay an external person to do, you should be compensating your employees to do this as well. If this is additional work for them. Um, so employee, employee resource groups is another great idea. Um, IND council trainings, and then pay equity analysis is a really good one. So we talked about equity some, and a big thing that always comes to mind with people when we talk equity is pay equity. Um, so looking into your pay and finding out, you know, are there issues, are there concerns and where are they? And then making the fix. And recently I was talking to someone, organizations there, this is another one of those areas where they're fearful um, and making the changes can happen really slow because they're worried about legal concerns coming out when they publish those results that their pay equity is not good. Um, but I'm going to say again, right now, I don't think the legal should be your concern. Your concern should be from a moral perspective that you are paying your employees unfairly and that's unethical, right? So let's go ahead and get this fixed as quick as possible. And then on a business impact side, if you just go out there and say, Hey, it's like, just be transparent. Transparent is the key, right? Transparency. So be transparent, say, we realize we are not paying everyone equally. So we are going to shuffle some things around. We're going to bump these people up to here. We're going to introduce these job grades. If you're in these job grades, you're going to be paid in this range, whatever it may be, just get it fixed. Those employees aren't going to want to see you at that point. They're just going to be glad that they're making the money they should be making. They're going to be happy that you're addressing it. So the longer you drag it out or you keep it hidden, that's that's where you get into legal issues, in my opinion. I think somebody needs to do a scientific study on this but it, and like kind of track it across organizations. But from what I've seen, when you are secretive and deceptive, that's when your employees get upset and go a legal route. But if you are open and honest and own up to the fact that you realize there has been an error and then you quickly correct it, that that's when they're like, okay, I can trust this organization. I'm happy to stay here. So yeah, so those are, those are some ideas, but really just working with, working with um, either your internal consultant or an external consultant to review your data, help you strategize and create a plan. There, there's a lot out there and, and talking again to your employees and listening to their ideas for improvement as well. So speak, talk about speaking with people and thank you very much for those wonderful uh, initiatives there. So we're talking about having open and honest conversations. And we talked about some people eager to, I, I suppose, make a difference, but just don't know how, you know, so given the, the approach to don't just run out to the street and say, listen, can I be your friend? Maybe strike up a natural conversation, a jazz uh, festival or whatever. And that brings me then to the point of what are the no-nos or should I say, as I was saying earlier, stuff white people say uh, that people should avoid that they don't know is offensive. Yeah, Whew, that's, a, that's a good one. So there, there are a lot of no-nos out there, honestly. Um, yeah. I would say also Google is a good friend. We'll go over a couple examples, but just Google microaggressions, right? And look okay. for things that are out there that will tell you what not to say. But some, some big ones is... Um, when it comes to black people, right? Don't talk, don't touch their hair. Don't don't talk about their hair too much. They're like it makes them feel like a zoo animal, and we don't like that. Um, 
And then one in the LGBTQIA space that gets me, uh, I actually just experienced the other day, is assuming they're who they're in a relationship with, right? So I was at a networking event and I said something about we. I had just been traveling. I said, oh, yeah, we were traveling. And he's like, oh, so your husband and one, we're not married. So that caught me. I was like, that's annoying. And then two, though, I was like, if I was not with a man, that would be really offensive and annoying to me. So it just rubs people the wrong way, even even not in that community, you know? So I like had a little conversation with this person. And then um, as a as a woman, not talking about their body, that can make someone, that's another thing I experienced recently at yeah. a networking event. Um, mentioned to someone, I was like, I don't work out. Like I, I or I don't do sports is what I said. Cause I have no hand-eye coordination. Don't do sports. Yeah. And yeah. then this man proceeded to talk about how he would not have guessed that. And I won't go into all of it, but for a solid, like 30, 45 seconds made statements about my body and put me and the person also there in a very uncomfortable situation. Um, and so I'm gonna do a quick pause here just to say the reason I'm putting these personal stories out there is because when we do this work and we explain like microaggressions, right? People are like, yeah. why, why are we still having this conversation? It's not real. This doesn't happen. Like we've all moved on. We all know. Yeah. And I am here to say, no, these are lived experiences from a week ago. Like this stuff is real. These conversations need to happen. People still need to learn. Um, so yeah. And, and in, in the, in the black space, you know, making make some other ones there just because I know, I think that was the original question. Um, Per, uh, in more personal stories, don't call someone an Oreo based off of their behavior. If they think they, if you think they quote unquote act white, right? Like there is no thing as acting white. <laughs> it is just, you are just a person and you have, you behave a certain way and we can all have sp specific personalities. Um, so not commenting on their behavior, also not saying like, you're one of the good ones or, you know, that's kind of in the same vein of, um, oh, I'm so impressed you were able to do that. And it's like, it, just the connotation behind it, you know, and getting at, man, you, you went through such a struggle and made it here. And it's like, ah, <laughs> I'm like, I didn't live on the streets. Like, what are you getting at? You know? So just yeah. not assuming about people, just, just being cautious of the, the tone and the direction. And again, not making assumptions uh, about people and where they come from. Um, but there are a lot of specific microaggressions out there. I've, we don't have time to cover them all. What I do want to touch on too, though, is this idea of microaffirmations. So instead, taking a positive spin and, and giving them all of these little uh, affirmations that they're important and you their value seen and heard. So one example for me is people who take the time to make sure they pronounce my name right. Um, and I know that's something we did at the beginning of this, right? Before we started recording, you're like, all right, got to make sure it's Sir I Therese, have, right? I was so happy because <laughs> all the things you've been doing, you know, thank God I did that. I, I suddenly became hyper aware and I was like, oh, I did do that. Oh, I did do yep. that. Yeah, yep. so thank you. And that <laughs> yeah, wasn't planned, by the way. Uh, but I don't know. Anyways, yeah. good. Go. It's good. It's so, it's so great. And that's like, that is an affirmation that you you value me and you want to make sure that um, you're respecting me in that way. So that's a micro affirmation. We talked about pronouns using, making sure you check with someone if you're unsure, you know, like making, or if they correct you, that's another thing when it comes to micro affirmations, right? Is if someone takes the time to correct you, don't get defensive, say yes, heard, appreciate it, 
I'll do better and just work to do better. That's an affirmation within itself. So that that's something that we really highlight is taking taking these microaggressions, trying to avoid using them and putting in time instead to try and do more micro affirmations and just acknowledging people for who they are and, and respecting them in that way. Well, thank you for that massive affirmation back to me. I didn't realize <laughs> I was doing it. And then as we were talking through, and I, I think at the start, um, and I do this quite a bit, even when I'm facilitating, is permission to make a mistake. So I say, listen, mm-hmm. we can always edit this out if something happens or whatever. Thank God <laughs> we're not going down that route. Um, there we, there's, there's lots of um, good stuff here. And for me then, going along, there's, I think uh, sometimes, because I've done it, is I thought I was doing a micro affirmation. But really what I was doing is a microaggression. And I, mm-hmm. I really think it's just about highlighting this for people. And then we were having the conversation there about, you know, how society, you know, it's really important to have these conversations because people then, oh, I didn't know that. So I think yeah. conversations like this are, are really important. So just just I'm, I'm really curious now about microaggressions. Are, are there other ones that I should be aware of uh, and our listeners should be aware of? There, there are a lot. And what I'm actually going to answer there is more specific to what you were saying about not being aware and going back to that, um, the concept of a relationship. And so with that, what I'm thinking there is not everyone is going to react the same to the same terms. And so you might need to react differently. So for example, uh, the word queer. Some some people in the LGBTQIA plus community, they love that word. It's an umbrella term. They're with it. Um, but some, uh, I think it's oftentimes older, right? They're used to how it was used der- in a derogatory manner. So they yeah. don't want you to call them that. So just knowing like maybe you use it and then you find out your your friend is like, oh, you know, I don't really like being called queer. Can you avoid that? heard okay I learned I'm not going to do it Um, similar with black versus African-American you have some people who are very strongly in the camp of they're okay being called black they want to be called black I know that like that's where I fall I never lived in Africa I feel like it's you know kind of rude or disrespectful or claim to be African-American because I don't know their their lived experience you know so I prefer to be called black versus there are others who are very strongly like no, I'm not black. I'm brown. I want to be called African-American. And so finding, again, just talking to them and figuring out, um, sorry, (laughs) uh, figuring out what they prefer, you know? Um, and so making it personal. And so there, there are a lot, there are a lot of microaggressions that exist in the world but just being aware that they do exist and being open to people when they say, what you just did really made me uncomfortable. I would appreciate it if you didn't do that, you know, and, and finding, finding that space and just being comfortable with the uncomfortable. It's one of my favorite terms when we talk about this stuff um, because it, it is uncomfortable, you know, and it's, and while it's uncomfortable for you to be told you, you did something to someone, imagine how uncomfortable it is for that person to have to be brave enough to say, I don't like what you just said to me could you not do that again, you know, and having that vulnerability to admit that to you. Um, so, so that would be my best advice is just, we know you're trying again, going in, everybody coming in with the best intentions and just being able to listen when someone corrects you. And I think, you know, for me growing up, um, in, you know, there's loads of mistakes or microaggressions that I probably have made throughout my life 
unknowingly. And I think um, what was helpful for me is is that if somebody pulled me aside to say, by the way, I just overheard that conversation or whatever, you may not realize this, but this was the impact of what you just said, yeah. you know, uh, and I was going to go, oh, really? And I go, yeah. You know, so I think that brings the conversations. How do we support people in the workplace then, right, is is what do we do if we witness um, or observe, you know, maybe your experiences there? How do we how do we approach that conversation? Yeah, yeah, um, that's that's a good question. So when it comes to that, if you are truly want to be an ally, you know, and support someone, if you see something happen, um, for example, uh, a common microaggression, I'll give you another example, a common microaggression is ignoring women when they're speaking in a meeting, um, mm-hmm. or, you know, t- talking over them, um, d- uh, letting someone else take credit for their idea. Uh, so if you're in a meeting and you see this happen uh, and you're a male, you could speak up and say, Hey, actually that was Sir Teresa's idea. She said that, I don't know if you heard her, um, so Therese, can you elaborate, you know, and just speaking up and giving her that floor and making sure she's heard, um, or if it's something related to color. So another popular microaggression that I haven't mentioned yet is, uh, it's funny because it's one that people think is positive is when I look at you, I don't see color, right? That's like, it doesn't, that's not anything. I'm colorblind. That's a really popular one. Um, and being able to say for, instead of that person having to say it, just being like, Hey, you know, saying you don't see their color, it actually erases part of their identity. Like she, and, and it's also unrealistic. Like you, you recognize that she's black. Uh, like just, just say like you, to, you were raised in, 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 this is one of my favorite ways to put it right. Is like, they're like, I was raised in a home where we didn't see color. No, you were raised in an inclusive home. But that's what you can say. I was raised in an inclusive family um, and we respect people for who they are. That's what you're trying to say. You're just saying it in a way that's disrespectful. So just finding a way to reframe. Um, but yeah, back to back to how to support. It's it's taking the onus of the problem off of that person of color, off of that woman and, and being able to stand up for them. So they don't have to look like, you know, I don't have to look like the angry black woman by saying... I don't like when you call me colorblind or, Hey, you just ignore me. You know, it's like, no, you, you got my back. You're going to stand up and be like, Hey, you're ignoring her. Um, instead of what people often do in these situations is either one completely ignore it and let the person handle it or two, they wait. Right. So it happened in this big meeting. And then after the meeting, they'll like pull the person to the side and be like, Oh, Hey, da, da, da. Um, so if you do it in the moment, one, it shows that, Per, that partner that you are an ally, right? That you're supporting them because you're doing it publicly. And two, it helps in, in, especially in the work environment, it helps feed into, you know, like this is our culture because now everybody is hearing this and it's like, this is how it is. This is how it's going to be. It's not a secret. It's not, and it's not taboo. It's not something we can't talk about. It's something that we are going to talk about and we're going to bring to the forefront. Um, so yeah, that's my advice is just not waiting till later, but just making a statement right there in the moment and supporting, um, your, your partner in the situation. So Grace, I could talk to you for another hour, <laughs> but we don't have the time today, unfortunately. Um, so we're coming to the end of the podcast and I'm going to give you a chance to do some key takeaways 
for our listeners to hear from you is is what they can do and what they should take away from this podcast. And then uh, after that, then we'll be hearing about your contact details and uh, a lovely um, gift that you're going to give to our listeners. So in terms of key takeaways, what are the key takeaways people should take from this conversation? Yeah. So key takeaways. One is that if you are going to be doing work in the diversity, equity, and inclusion space for your organization, making sure that either whoever you have internally is qualified and experienced in this work, or whoever you partner with externally is experienced and knows what they're doing. Um, And then two, when you're doing this work, data, 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 right? Just making sure that you really lean into measurement. And when I'm talking about measurement, I mean the quantitative and looking at your hard numbers, but also the qualitative, getting that employee voice, which you can quantify and follow up with some focus groups, get that qualitative perspective. Measurement is key because it will then direct you into knowing where to go to act. So avoid being reactive and just diving into that action phase and actually be more proactive about the process. Start with measurement, develop a plan, a strategy, and then build out your action side. Um, And then lastly, on the topic of allyship, just really leaning into the fact that you can't save the whole world at once. Look at it at an individual level between you, the ally, and your partner, and how you are working together towards some act of social justice. That is great. Thank you so much for that. And I believe then you an offer for our listeners here, especially in terms of a topic of allyship. Yeah. So we have a course on Udemy called Ally Up, and we are going to be offering a voucher to everyone to get a discount on that course if you would like to go through it. It's a microlearning course. So I believe there are 11 or so videos and they're all just a few minutes long. So you can do them at your own pace. But it's really helpful to dive into more of what we discussed today uh, at a deeper level and help you figure out how to be a better ally. Thank you so much for that. And if people then were to contract, contact you, Sir Therese, how might they do so? Yeah, so you can reach out, uh, go to our website, mattinglysolutions.com and find out more about us there or fill out our contact us info form. You can also reach out to me directly at sertrice at mattinglysolutions.com. That's my email. Or if you're a social media fan, look me up. I'm the only Sertrice like that you find on any platform. So just pop my name in LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, whatever you prefer. And I'm happy to chat. Uh, just slide into my DMs. That's fine. <laughs> and it, Would you mind spelling your name just in case uh, yes. there's so a people can, can you can definitely get a hit on the social media profile piece? Yeah, good, good call out. Uh, it's a hard one. So Sertrice, S-E-R-T-R-I-C-E. Excellent. Well, Sir Therese, thank you so much for that. That has been so educational, insightful, um, and I'm sure a lot of people would have taken a lot from that conversation as I have. Thank you so much for joining the Workplace Podcast today. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's been a blast. (laughs) That's it for this episode of the Workplace Podcast. My special thanks to this week's guest for a wonderful discussion. If you want to get in contact with a podcast about a workplace topic or a particular challenge that you're facing, contact me via Twitter at Different Paths. You can also connect with me on LinkedIn, William Corless, C-O-R-L-E-S-S, 
or go to my website www.yellowwood.ie Yellowwood, your external learning and development partner. Provider executive coaching, facilitation and training. Take a different path to success with your career, leadership, team and organisation.